fidelity high, the people you dig, the records they love. Sam Beam is a critically acclaimed singer-songwriter. Since 2002, he has issued six studio albums as well as countless EPs and singles under the moniker Iron and Wine. In 2015, he released Sing Into My Mouth, an album of cover songs alongside Band of Horses frontman Ben Bridwell, and released Love Letter for Fire, a collaboration with the singer-songwriter Jessica Hoop the following year. Rolling Stone magazine has stated that Beam is responsible for some of his generation's most affecting records. He just released his anticipated album Beast Epic, and it is his first as Iron and Wine in four years. Pitchfork stated, Sam Beam brings Iron and Wine full circle on his sixth album, using the warm acoustic instrumentation of his early work and some of the most moving singing of his career. This is Sam Beam of Iron and Wine, and my fidelity high is the Trinity Sessions by Cowboy Junkies. I discovered this record on Saturday Night Live of all places when I was 14, um, back in 1987 in Columbia, South Carolina. People like me discovered music because there wasn't a lot of other places to discover music. Uh, we discovered it on, on Saturday night, um, on Saturday Night Live. I remember seeing them. Um, and if I, I have to go back and set the scene a little bit because in Columbia there wasn't a whole lot of music besides whatever was on the radio, which was at the time was a lot of hair metal bands. I mean, even U2, the Joshua Tree was like a big deal because it was so rootsy, <laughs> quote unquote. You know, um, so there was all this beginning of rap uh, and that that sound that was happening in hip hop, that, that sound, but it was still riding the end of new wave and everything felt really plastic and, you know, party, dancey, and that was great too, but it wasn't, when this record came along, it, it felt really out of place, it felt really unique. Um, um, I mean, and even for me, I have to go back a little bit further, because I grew up in a place where there wasn't a whole lot of, I mean, I eventually found a music culture, and a record. there was a great record store called Manifest Records in Colombia, um, which I discovered a lot of things. But most of my music either came from my parents' record collection was all Motown, because they were in college in the 60s, uh, in the South. And, you know, the, <laughs> the psychedelic movement didn't quite reach down there. Um, and country music, which we hated because we were... We were younger than that, and we wanted, you know, we all liked punk rock, and and so, and new wave music, and um, metal music, all this stuff, I just didn't, I, it was an inheritance that I did not want. <laughs> uh, and so, I had a stigma against country music at the time, um, but my, I, I had a friend, my buddy Alex, his stepdad, sort of introduced us to records like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. He gave me a Velvet Underground record and just blew my mind, you know, as a little 14-year-old kid who was obsessed with music. Um, and New Order, that's how I heard like that sort of more electronic punk rock, you know, whatever post-punk stuff. It felt super new and fresh to my ears in, in South Carolina at the time. Um, but then this record came out of nowhere, this... Um, really quiet and vibey thing that came out and um, 
they were doing all these different covers, like Hank Williams covers, Velvet Underground covers, all these things in the same space, and this super minimalistic, but also really trancey, beautiful space, sonic space. Um, and for me, as a little kid who was, you know, really into like pop music, I mean, whatever your definition of pop music, whether it's R&B pop or plastic, you know, kind of top 40 pop, 1987, you know, crazy sounds. I mean, silly and fun, just crazy. This record came out of, to my ears, came out of nowhere, but it created this space. Um, most of the punk rock that I listened to or the heavier music was only able to properly um, trans. Uh, you really only had a space to to talk about your rage. You know what I mean? It only had or or let's get psyched and go do something awesome. You know, it's like it was at this high energy music that I that I, is wonderful to listen to, and it and it. And that music creates a vehicle for those messages in a way that nothing else can. I mean, you know, any coach on the field can, like, yell at you. But if you play a song, like an ACDC song, that's all you have to do is hear that, that music and you're excited. This music, to me, because, I, again, I didn't really want to listen to country music. I didn't want, I didn't like the church hymns that I was hearing it on Sunday. I was like, I, this, this was like, ugh, I want to go home and listen to you know, New Order and, you know, this weird, The Cure. And I mean, you know, all those bands were still fairly fair. They weren't huge bands. R.E.M. Was, wasn't even, was like sort of on the cusp of like becoming like a super famous band. Um, but this record came along and created a space where you could, I was like, wow, you could talk about anything in this space. It just felt so generous. Like you could talk about um, like what country music, songs are so great about this sort of broken character either confessing something or 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 just saying how you know pleading for something that he needs or you know or her or you know whoever the whoever is speaking um and so it was such a generous space um to to write songs from and it and it hit me like wow this is like a brand new thing in my kid brain that's only absorbed so much music types of music um it felt really fresh i mean i don't think i really thought about those kinds of things but it just at the time but it, it definitely struck me like oh you can you know it it struck me you can cover a velvet underground song you can cover a Waylon's Jennings song all these things can can live in the same space I think it was the first time that I really was aware of of a song as a script instead of an identity for a band you know what I mean um uh it felt like um it felt like they could take any material and 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 draw it into their aesthetic which was you know, I I remember a lot of friends of mine hearing it at the time and going, "Boring, that's lame, man. Whatever, you know, you know, sonic Prozac or <laughs> whatever." But for me, it felt like a like this it, this um, you just got to stretch out and you didn't have to. You could say whatever you wanted to. They could say whatever. They could talk about anything they wanted to. Um, uh, and in 
um, over the years, you know, absorbing lots of different types of music, jazz and lots of other things that I've been drawn to, I can still point to like so many things that they were doing at that time, um, drawing a lot of dissonant chords and, but at the same time, lots of space that, you know, that set the scene for a lot of other bands to do that kind of a thing. Um, draw country into this sort of almost minimalist punk rock. Th I mean, in a way, they kind of precursor like what Lowe would do like 10 years later or something. I mean, but it had this country element, which made it cool for me, like some punk rocker kid, like to say like, oh, there is something to those Hank Williams songs. I mean, it, and again, I wasn't really hip to like, I mean, I heard Bob Dylan and all those other things. I didn't understand, like, I'd never heard the band or what they had done for country music as far as, like, bringing it into, like, a different perspective for people. Um, I was just growing up and listening to, you know, whatever was on the radio and punk rock and whatever. And so for me, that was, that was a huge record. I didn't realize how much I liked stories in songs, and they were... Um, a big story band because a lot of country music. I mean, they're it's they're story songs. Um, there's always a problem. There's always a conflict. <laughs> uh, and their style, their musical style, was really developed. At least to my ear, it was it was really crystalline. And and I mean, I love the sound, but the stories. Um, I think it was just they they were making a beautiful handshake that sort of made sense in my in my mind and mostly my music heart. <laughs> you know, it, um this this type of sonic atmosphere and those kinds of stories married so closely together in my in my ears in 1987 that um I don't think I was very conscious of it at the time, but I definitely feel like it it sat with me for a long time or at least the seed was planted and and I've and I've mined those kinds of stories and that kind of atmosphere ever since then. I mean, that was a lot of other things too, but <laughs> but that that's still like, that's the space that I come back to to sort of reset over and over. It didn't so much bring me to other artists because I had heard of, of um, obviously I'd heard the Velvet Underground. I was a huge Velvet Underground fan. And so that was mainly the main one where I heard them do it in this style, this new, this song that I was very familiar with in a, in a different style. I was, I, it pricked up my ears. But it also sort of prepared me for like when Mazzy Star and these other more minimalist bands started to pop up, um, sort of heady, druggy, kind of just... I don't know what do you how do you describe that music. I mean, it's just real vibey. Um, I loved it. Um, I was primed and ready for that kind of stuff, and it was it was fun because, um, like I was saying before, it just it it gave you a lot more space. To me, it felt more like a musical space that allowed for the way people usually think. You know what I mean? Like you could you could talk about your life in a reflective way without feeling like you had to um like once the tempo gets up you're there's only so many things that work that you can talk about without being ironic and but this sonic space which is a bit languid um minor keys even better because you can get into like a conflicted kind of storyline but um but they immediately 
put across this feeling of just sort of like this is what this is what I had to say in a musical sense, and it didn't have to be contrived. Didn't have to. It didn't. There weren't rules that were telling it. There weren't musical rules that that constricted what you could say. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, like as soon as the tempo gets up, you're you're you have to talk. You're constricted to only talk about certain types of things, which, or at least in my mind, when I was when I was listening to it, there's only certain types of things you could. At least, I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of things you could say, but it felt more constricted when the, when the tempo relaxed, and all of a sudden there was this sonic, there was all this space opened up in between the notes and in between the beats. It felt more like what my everyday life was like. And so what they would talk about would be like something you would talk about in a conversation or someone would ask you, how are you doing? You would say, you know what, I'm really bummed out about this girl or I'm really, you know, you know and it, but it just had this, this ease that felt more like, it felt more like life rather than um, a, a commercial for what you thought life was supposed to be like. Or, I don't know, it's, it sounds silly. But at the same time, it also... Um, prepared me for, um, you know, a lot of this sort of Americana movement that popped up, you know, whether they were feeding off of Dylan or the band or, or um, uh, you know, some of the stuff from Texas or like all this different kind of country, quote unquote, country kind of Americana music. That was kind of the first band that I heard that was kind of doing that stuff. Um, and so the rest of it kind of made sense. And and honestly, I kind of always compared what I heard, whether it was like as good as the Cowboy Junkies or not as good. Isn't that dumb? <laughs> but the idea was that it was all live. And that's, I mean, yeah, bands have been doing that a lot, but there was no overdubs. It was all this live thing. And and the the feeling that they got from recording in the church and recording all that ambiance in the church is really i mean it it it's a it's almost another band member on this record i mean really it it that sound looms so large in this thing um that it's it's impossible to come away from that record without talking or talk about this record without that sense of place i mean you can lots of bands before and after have tried to you know add reverb and all these like sort of Things to create a sonic atmosphere, but they walked in, and I'm sure it affected the way they played because they were hearing it, and it affected the way that they made it because they also did it all in one. You know, they all they were all playing in this space. Um, uh, they, I think they, I was reading that they had to um, run her vocals through another an extra PA, you know, just to get it over the sound of the other things, and that and that inevitably. All those things start to bleed together and just create this beautiful crosstalk between the sounds um, that you don't get otherwise. And you know, arguably, you can listen to other records; it's not there. I mean, they have really strong records. I'm, I've had a relationship with this band ever since this record, and I always check out what they do. I mean, even to a point where, like, they have a song called "Oregon Hill," and I was living in Oregon Hill in Richmond at the time. I was like, "This is meant to be." I just. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm gonna marry this band, <laughs> but uh, but at the same time, you know that that quality that exists on that record is I think is what um, 
I mean, it affected a lot of people, and I think, you know, a lot of people reacted. That's what they reacted to, too, was either... It doesn't... The odd thing is that it, it, it made them, I assume, made them be... Um, commit to commit to things, but also be in the moment, and also maybe they were playing like that all the time. I, I have no idea, but it also comes across as this like off the cuff snapshot of a moment, fly on the wall of this band just hanging out in a church and ha- recording these beautiful spacious tunes. And that's, I mean, that's that's what we all, you know, chimed in for. That's what we all. That's the price of admission. You just want to came in and and just hang out and hear that all day. It's so great. Over the years, I've become really well known for um, interpreting other people's songs too. And I think, uh, honestly, I feel like um, this record it comes back to this record too. I mean, just hearing them do "Sweet Jane" and these kinds of things, like reinterpret the, just a full interpretation, not not just someone doing the exact same sort of energy, even just as someone else's voice. I mean, they took the song and like and flipped it around so you didn't it wasn't about the energy it was about the story it was about the words um that stuck with me too i think um just getting back to um how it affected me and so it was the first time where i felt like oh a song is just a script and anyone can sing it and they can make it theirs um that was a first for me and i don't again i don't think it was like a conscious thing it was like this little switch flipped in my brain like oh you know, you can do anything you want. Look at look at these. That's that's a really interesting take. I mean, having no idea that people in jazz and have been doing forever, <laughs> but at the same time, um, I I feel like um, yeah. If anyone wants to delve into this record, yeah, Sweet Jane is a wonderful place to start because it's probably one that they're familiar with, but maybe haven't heard it this way. Um, and if you're more adventurous, you could go for Misguided Angel because I think I ripped that song off about a hundred (laughs) times. Thanks for listening to Fidelity High. For an extended version of this episode, including songs from the featured artists, please visit fidelityhigh.com.